This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev, and this week, in line with Harmony Week and celebrating cultural diversity, I am delighted to bring you two incredible fiction books around connecting cultures. First up, Ben sits down with Omar J. Saker to discuss his beautiful and compelling novel, Son of Sin. Then, in our second interview, Ben chats with Australian Icelandic author Kari Gislason on his new historical novel, The Sorrow Stone. Check the show notes below for timestamps for all interviews, as well as links to all of the books mentioned. Now over to Ben's interview with Omar J. Saker, author of Son of Sin. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, uh, and I'm on a Zoom call today, and the guy on the other side of uh, the metaverse is Omar Saker, an Arab-Australian poet and author, born of Lebanese and Turkish Muslim migrants. His collection, The Lost Arabs, won the 2020 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry and was shortlisted for a whole host of other prizes. His debut novel, Son of Sin, is out right now. Omar, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I refuse to think of it as the metaverse, but I'm here nonetheless. Good. (laughs) Uh, Omar, I've been uh, aware of you as uh, a poet um, for a while, coming out of Southwest Sydney and making waves. Uh, Now we have this striking novel from you, The Son of Sin, which just reads like, a gorgeous, relentless, 300-page epic poem in a way. It's so lyrical. Uh, And when your publisher sent me a copy, he put a little note in, right? And he said, Ben, this is going to rock your world. And it's 95% just derived from Omar's lived experience and captured as fiction. So I just... I think this book is a triumph, and if that is from your real life, I think it's a it's a triumph that you've been able to capture that on the page. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and why you need to reckon with your your life, your youth, uh, in the pages of a novel? Yeah, thank you. Um, I was born and raised in Western Sydney, in Liverpool, um, around Kasula, Lanier. Uh, Warwick Farm areas, um, and mostly by my auntie and uh, mother, two single Lebanese women uh, who were born in Lebanon and came here as children. Um, and yes, I draw on my lived experiences for my art. It was a pretty tough uh, childhood and adolescence. Um, It would have been tough even without the hostility that this nation has fostered toward Muslim and Arab communities. It would have been hard even without, you know, police harassment and brutality that I've personally witnessed um, and that my family has experienced. But it was harder still because of those things. And... Yeah, I feel a compulsion to 
counter what is so often said about my communities, um, whether it be in poetry or articles, essays, um, and now this novel, my community, like every community, has its problems, you know, um, and they need to be reckoned with, but I do so with love, and I think that makes all the difference. Yeah, love is a, a really special theme in this novel. It's, it's also a beautiful coming of age, uh, a queer coming of age as well. Uh, and you know, for me reading it, that there are hallmarks of the coming of age that a straight white secular reader can, can pick up on, you know, uh, the, the sense of shame and, and just kind of a need for belonging as you drift from your parents or family and you might feel inadequate among your peers. Um, you're looking for spaces to occupy. You don't feel comfortable. Uh, but the spaces this, this, um, this book occupy, I think you've already uh, touched on it, are just so wildly removed from my youth. Uh, in the first just pages of this novel, uh, we meet uh, Jamal Smith, uh, this kid, and it is um, it is Ramadan, and it is a busy household, and it is the the night of power. And this guy, Jamal Smith, is is at prayer. Um, could you could you give the listener just a a fraction of the sights and smells and sounds of of that household, and uh, maybe clue us in a little bit of why 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 Jamal is uh, making his attempt at prayer on this particular night. Um, yeah, it's, it's chaotic for sure. Um, you know, so many people in my childhood would come over to my auntie's house and we're talking tables of food. Um, you know, every smell you can imagine you're hungry, you're thirsty. Um, You've been waiting all day for this, and uh, it's agonizing. It's it's agonizing to be so close to to what you can't have, and this is the kind of running theme um, in in the book, and it's why I start there. Uh, and Jamel is coming to grips with his desires, um, which he knows are shameful, um, which he knows are taboo in his culture. Um, and which he had assumed were coming from the devil or coming from the shaitan, you know. And the reason why it's important to place this moment within Ramadan is because we believe that during the holy month, the, the gates of hell are shut. So it can't be coming from the devil. It's coming from him. And so there's that realization. Um, and the night of power, it's what we call it kind of colloquially. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think a more literal translation is the night of decree. And we believe that angels um, are very much present 
on that night and will hear your prayers. So the difficulty is, though, that, like, no one's exactly sure what night it falls on, except that it's, like, one of the last uh, few nights of, of Ramadan, um, and it, it's supposed to fall on an uneven number. So, uh, you know, to hedge your bets, you can, like, treat every night in the last 10 nights of Ramadan as the night of power. Um, so, yeah, he's praying. He's praying in the hope that um, he's not queer. And that's that prayer is not really answered. It um, it strikes me uh, throughout this book something that uh, lit up in my mind uh, in in my really limited understanding of uh, the Muslim faith and um, that whole community. Uh, you know, as as Westerners, we 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 view it from the outside, and, and all we see are the kind of orthodoxies um, around daily life and what is halal and what is haram. Uh, you know, sitting down to pee and praying to Mecca and uh, being sober. Um, but something that uh, permeates throughout this book is, um, well, I I I describe it as a as a mysticism almost. Uh, mm. It's uh, a real superstition or, or hard keyed belief in in angels and demons and the gates of hell. Um, one one moment that uh, really uh, struck me personally was uh, uh, I think it's there at Rookwood, the massive necropolis in in Sydney's west, um, and. Uh, they're visiting the, the the grave of an infant and a grieving family uh, are really upset that I think it's a, a Western relative <laughs> um, or a secular relative has, has put a, a teddy bear on on the grave, yeah. um, which is you know kind of common. Uh, but but that that really upsets them. <laughs> uh, can, you, can you explain that? that moment and, and, yeah. and just, just talk on the the presence of angels and demons mm. in your work. For sure. Um, Islam is a deeply spiritual uh, religion and a lot of its, uh, a lot of its elements would be described by the secular or Western mind as um, supernatural or uh, superstition or, um, along those lines and you know the jinn are an example of that because we don't just believe in uh, the literal existence of angels we believe in jinn uh, the inhabitants of the invisible world uh, a separate free-willed um, race of beings and it's often taken in uh, out of context um, in in mainstream society and jinn are kind of depicted as evil. Um, that's not the case, right? They're free-willed. They're pretty much like people uh, and can act in, in really whatever way they see fit. Um, 
So, and, and I was raised believing this, literally. Um, and I think that affects you. It affects you to think of yourself as being observed um, or vulnerable to invisible watchers um, every single day of your life. Um, so the scene you're referring to, um, yeah, someone places a teddy bear on an infant's grave. The mother, in fact, places a teddy bear on her stillborn son's grave. And her husband, Jamal's cousin, uh, is furious and heartbroken. And he's, he's grieving uh, and he's enraged. And Jamal doesn't really understand why. And he asks and his cousin Jihad says, well, it's, it's because the presence of this teddy bear, which has a body, uh, means it can be possessed by a malevolent spirit. And it means that angels will not have been visiting my son um, for the period of time in which this teddy bear was on his grave. Now, not every Muslim believes this. Um, not every um, Muslim treats uh, the, our beliefs so literally. Um, but he did, and he does. And it's a confronting moment. And I was real. I really wanted to showcase that to be Muslim, to come from our community, it's, it isn't, you know, one or two, three things. It isn't just women wearing the hijab or not wearing the hijab. It's, it's so much more complicated than that. And it infuses every single day of your life. Yeah. That's, um, it's, uh, it, you do get that across and, in that you you make a really powerful moment of of men <laughs> experiencing grief. Uh, that's that's something that that happens throughout this book, and you know I think there are uh, you know the Rookwood Cemetery uh, has a, a strong presence in this novel. It, has it had a, a strong presence in your life? Death seems to to hang over this book in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, most of my family is buried in Rookwood. I go there often. Um, I find it to be a profoundly comforting place. Um, and, you know, I enjoy my time there. Uh, death hangs over this book because my father and my uncle, his brother passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, not long before I started writing. Uh, and as shown in the book, you know, they died in the same week. Um, and it's taken me these years to reckon with and process that grief. One of the more interesting moments for me uh, in this book comes, comes later. And your character, Jamal, has, has left home and he's, he's progressed to a place where he's, he's kind of moved into the wider, more affluent suburbs of the inner West. Um, and he's, 
is, it seems to become both an outsider within that community and within his community at home. Um, and I'd love to, I'd love you to talk about that, those two worlds in and of itself, mm. but also there's a, I think it's just a page in this book that sits with me where Jamal has to spend a, a night in his childhood home and he can't be at rest. Uh, and he, he kind of, he, he wonders about the, the atmosphere of this, of this area of these suburbs, um, this air of hostility or violence. And, you know, he, he wonders kind of aloud to the reader, is it, um, is it, is it something from the conflicts that um, have created traumas that people have imported with them as migrants moving into these suburbs? Or is it the colonial violence on which, you know, those plains were cleared uh, and those suburbs founded? Or was it something entirely different? Uh, that, that questioning and that, that concept of an uncomfortable air, um, not, not, a, not a given violence, but, but an uncomfortable air. I, I, found, that, I found that really um, pertinent. And I'd love you to, to riff on that for a moment. So where to begin? Uh, let's, the difference between the inner West and, and Western Sydney um, is real and marked um and i have found it to be incredibly strange personally um because i'm i was at that time interacting with people whose lives were profoundly different to mine whose upbringings were profoundly different to mine and I, you know i think their air wasn't uncomfortable i think they never had trouble breathing and um so i i wanted to explore that just a little bit not a lot just a little bit um in the book but the other question about what is it that makes people behave the way that they behave in these areas is is much bigger and I personally think that it's a combination of all the elements that he um, identifies, right? It's the trauma that has informed uh, the lives of their parents, the abuses that they suffered at the hands of um, their father. Um, it's... Uh, absolutely a vestige of uh, the Australian colonial culture, which is um, incredibly masculine and incredibly toxic um, and kind of is in this state of um, relentless defensiveness. Uh, and so is unable to genuinely reckon with what's happened here and what is happening still. 
because to do so would mean being vulnerable. Uh, and it's something that Australian masculinity does not allow, does not allow that vulnerability. Um, but then, of course, there's just poverty, right? It's poverty. Being poor makes you desperate. It makes you fucking desperate. Um, and it's that desperation which you can feel um, that leads people to drastic choices, leads people to drugs, leads people to spiraling. Um, from there into all kinds of violence and a cycle that many do not break out of. I'm glad you touched on class, uh, class and, uh, and poverty, because when I think about this book uh, and the story it tells, it tells a story of uh, family and love and race and religion but it also tells a story of class and of poverty in this city that we live in. Um, when I've described your book uh, to readers, um, uh, to friends, uh, I, I often encounter them uh, re replying kind of predictively with, this sounds like Christos Chalkas. You know, you've got a, you've got a queer story um, with, uh, in a, a male dominated world, uh, and you've got a migrant community and you've got class. Um, and I, I agree with that. And I, I, I wanted to ask how Christos's work, um, as if you've read it and if, if you're, if you've had a, have a relationship with it, but also, I also think that's kind of, a, a white reader's way of making sense of this book. And I would yeah. love to get from you, uh, some Arab uh, authors that you can recommend uh, to our listeners. Yeah, um, I have read um, some of Christos's work, uh, of course, and um, I adore him. You know, he's a he's a he's a lovely man, um, and I have no problem whatsoever with um, anyone linking my work to his. Um, he, you know, as a queer wog, basically has been walking this path a lot longer um, than I have. And I think a lot of us are indebted to him um, for the work that he's done. I think we're very different writers, that said. Um, but of course, yes, we touch on um, similar subjects uh although I, f I find it weird when people say oh but you write about class i'm like i don't understand how you don't like everyone does whether they think they are or not <laughs> it's there so um but as 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 man as far as writers who um inspired me um you know, David Malouf is one, is a queer Arab. Uh, he's not often described as Arab. Um, and he and I have had this conversation before, but I claim him anyway. 
because um, he looks like Majidou, and so uh, he can't get away from it. And, uh, and I think it's in his work as well. Um, so uh, big love to him, um, to Adonis, uh, to uh, Kazim Ali, uh, who is not Arab, but is queer and Muslim. Um, and actually I would say of, of everyone, it was, it was Kazim who, um, whose writing really opened the door for me personally, um, as, as a writer, it was reading, um, his poems that made me go, oh, you can, you can do this. Like you can put all of yourself into, uh, a poem and 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 truly that's what uh s- started me on this journey well i hope this journey uh is one that is long lived because your work is really something special and uh omar Seka, I'm, I'm really thankful for your time today uh i'm gonna end with um uh one more question and it might be a little bit personal, so um, let me know how you go with it. <laughs> um, but you've 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 written a coming of age story, a story of uh, uh, a broke queer Lebanese Australian growing up through the war on terror, the Cronulla riots, nine eleven, um, and the horrors that come within that. Uh, you're about to become a father yourself, uh, and I wanted to ask, what ways do you think? Um, life will be different for your child and um, in what ways uh, you think our society will remain the same? Um, That's a big question. Uh, But, you know, I think writing this book was really important to me. Um, You know, coming to the birth, hopefully, inshallah, of my first child, um, because I had to really sit with all the things that have happened and go through them um, very carefully. And it kind of almost became a long litany of ways not to be a parent. And (laughs) I was like, you know, got to the end of it and I was like, wow, okay. Um, I had suddenly all these things that, that, I was determined to do um, and be for this child. Most of, you know, most of all, I, I, I want to be the one they can turn to um, and confide in um, and to never be the reason they flinch in fear. Um, as far as society is concerned, um, will it be better for them? No, um, <laughs> no, on the subject of, you know, Islamophobia and, and, and racism. Um, but yes, on the subject of class, I'm in a much better financial position than uh, my auntie and my mum was, you know. Um, and that means they're going to have a better life. And the only way they're not going to have a better life is if I'm dead. 
Omaseka, thank you very much for your time today. Um, I really appreciate uh, this book. It is powerful stuff and I cannot wait to read more from you. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to be on this podcast and, and asking these questions. Thank you. Now over to Ben's interview with Kari Gislason, author of The Sorrow Stone. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, uh, and I'm on a Zoom call today. And the guy on the other side is Kari Gislason. Why don't you tell us a little bit about The Sorrow Stone? So The Sorrow Stone is based on two sagas so i should probably just explain a little bit about like what a saga is it it's a it's a story of the people who came to iceland in the ninth and tenth centuries and settled this remote island in the north atlantic and mainly they came from norway um although the genealogical evidence um sorry the genetic evidence suggests that there may have been more to it than that. There may have been people coming from Ireland and Scotland and, and Germany and other places. But these are the stories of settlement in an island and the culture that emerges, you know, in those first hundred years of settlement. And a lot of the people who left Norway did so, you know, under duress. They were, they were exiles of their time. And, and just to kind of put yourself into the situation of these people, they were traveling across the North Atlantic in open ships to settle in a country that they didn't really know anything about. So they were essentially, you know, refugees, exiles um, of their day, and they found somewhere to live in, in Iceland. Uh, it wasn't occupied at the time. There were some Irish uh, monks there, we think, but otherwise it was pretty much an empty island. And so the, the Norse, the Vikings, uh, settled in this, uh, you know, kind of island state that could re-establish things that they'd lost at home. And the stories that come out of that moment in history are stories about, like, intense conflicts and family uh, disputes on this, on this island. And one of them is called the Saga of Gisli. And it's the story of a man who's a, he's an outlaw, he's a poet, uh, and he's also a brother. He's a brother uh, and a possessive one. You know, he, he's one of those possessive males who wants to, to you know, kind of control the family and, and, and keep an eye on what everyone's doing. Um, and so Geesley is a very dominant figure in his story, but I was you know, over the years, more and more interested in some of the other characters in that story, the ones who aren't the heroic, kind of ethically certain characters, but the ones who are more complex mm. and have more difficult decisions to make. Like, you imagine, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people understand this, having a very dominant sibling, you know, who makes the decisions for the family, right? Um, and in this particular family, he's the youngest. So the youngest sibling is the dominant one who's making decisions for everyone. 
where does that leave like everyone else? Uh, who, how do you, how do you deal with this guy? You kind of need, because this is a society that needs strong families, needs strong people to survive. But on the other hand, you sort of got to live with this person who makes all the decisions for you and who sometimes comes into conflict with the people you love. And that's the story of the sorrow. Yes. Zone. So, you know, Disa, my character, the main character of my story is the sister of this dominant brother. And she falls in love with someone that he comes to hate, that the brother comes to hate. And she has to make a decision. Uh, about where her loyalties lie. And it's not, it's not an easy decision. Like even today, it wouldn't be an, e be an easy decision. Back then, it was an almost impossible because one day they may need, you may need them to, to, to fight for you. Uh, and the position of women in the society, even though women had a strong position in the society, they still needed these males in order to, mm. to fight them at certain times. So that's the sort of key story. It's the story of a woman who... Um, is, is somehow managing uh, to negotiate family life <laughs> in a very, very radically different world from our own. Yes, and, and she's brilliant. And we meet her in the most extraordinary circumstance. She's, she's just fled. <laughs> yeah, I, I, love the way, I love the way you just described uh, the early migration to Iceland it, it it really makes it sound like you're if if uh, America in the uh, uh, 18th and 19th century was the wild west this is the wild north of, <laughs> of the 10th century uh, but she she we meet her in this extraordinary circumstance she is she is fleeing and she is fleeing with her son in in the night <laughs> and uh, she's struck someone and uh it's she's obviously trying to escape a, a really uncomfortable circumstance uh and, and the reader doesn't know the full story and and she has this brilliant son with her and he doesn't know the full story and he doesn't know his father and he's in as you say this uh patriarchal tradition where where he you know the, the father is the most important part of your life in, in such a sense. So um, there's so much mystery that is just on the page instantly. Uh, and the, the reader is sucked in. <laughs> You've done that well. Um, but yeah, you, you bring me uh, right to the, uh, the, the key kind of question for me. Um, the Nordic countries, and Iceland's one of them, they're, they're touted, they're celebrated as being you know, progressive success stories where gender equality is at the forefront. It's, you know, far outpaces the rest of the modern world. What about the pre-industrial era? What about women in the 10th century, uh, and particularly in this, this Icelandic context? What was, what was the life of women like? The, the gender roles were a little different from uh, today, not so much in the the activities that the genders uh, were engaged in. So women were charged with running the, the inside spaces. Um, so, and they actually hired servants. Um, they dealt with the home economy and men were expected to, to work in the outside uh, jobs uh, on, on the fields and so on, um, the hay. I mean, remember Vikings more so than raiders are farmers. 
um, you know, mm. they, 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 their, main, their main occupation was farming and fishing in valleys and dales close to the sea. That was the life of a Viking, really, and that was the life of 10th century Iceland. The, the truth is that women in medieval Iceland did have uh, a level of power that was unusual for that time. Um, so women retained their property rights. So once you married, you didn't for, forfeit your property to the male. Um, now the male might in, in, in reality have a, have, a, have, have a sort of control of that property but you retained the right to it. Women also had the right to divorce in medieval Iceland. So you could decide, you could leave a male and take your possessions with you. Now, if you put those two things together, that is a radically different position from most of Europe until the late 19th century. Um, the Married Women's Property Settlement Act which came into Britain in, in the 19th century, ensured that women retained property rights in marriage. So that doesn't happen in the UK until, you know, 900 years later. So it, it is a different position that women have. And as a result, the literature um, presents women in an interesting way. Uh, there's still cliches, mm. there's still cliches and there's still, um, kind of standard female character types you still get the femme fatale the dangerous woman um, and all of, you still get um, disparaging character portraits but there's more complexity to the female characters in this literature than you might expect and i think it's tied to power that there is this power that women retained in medieval and uh, viking iceland and in scandinavia as a whole actually that didn't exist uh, in other parts of Europe at the time. That's really interesting. Um, the, the other key interest that I think is going to just draw readers to this novel is is setting, right? Um, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the the rugged country of this novel, but particularly the the northwest corner of Iceland. That that's 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 the badlands right or <laughs> it seems very far from you know a starbucks <laughs> well you know iceland's changing so quickly then you know there'll be a there'll be a starbucks everywhere soon um but uh, the the setting of the, the the northwest there is like is truly breathtaking uh country and Part of writing this novel was spending some time there, but I, I have um, lived there as well in that part of, of Iceland. Uh, this novel, the main setting of this novel, which is Hökerdalur or Hawkdale, is just a couple of fjords down from, from that town. Um, and the landscape is sort of, you, you know, the, your most dramatic fjordscape that you can imagine uh, with these tabletop mountains with very steep sides narrow valleys and then these fjords that run into the into the land and you have this feeling when you're there of being utterly enclosed by you know the, these kind of giants uh, of rock and you know the mountains are, are sort of pressing upon you and in this particular story um, two families are living in one of these valleys, one of these tight valleys, 
and they end up sort of living too closely together. And that's part of the problem that these characters have is that they are living uh, on a farm that should probably only be having, you know, should probably only have one farmhouse on it. So they can hear each other. They can see what they're doing. They can, every day they see each other walking up, uh, through the valley. Um, I went, I went there again uh, as part of the research for this novel and uh, by some sort of miracle, it was late September, but there was this incredibly warm day. And by warm, I mean, you know, 15 degrees or something. And the sun was out <laughs> and I, and I started sort of walking around. I did a lot of walking in this area and the farmer saw me walking around and he, he, he drove up to me and he said, you know, what are you doing? Why are you taking pictures of my land? Um, he thought for a start, he thought I was a real estate agent uh, who was trying to kind of suss out his property. I said, no, 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 I'm here to, to do some research. I'm writing about Gisla Saga, you know, the Saga of Gisli. And he said, ah, well, that's, that's okay then. And um, you do know, don't you, that this is the most beautiful valley in all of Iceland. And I said, yes, I can see that. He said, in that case, you should walk all the way up to the end uh, while you're here. And don't just look at it from, from, you know, from where we are near the road. And um, I did, I spent a day walking up into the valley and it sort of completely changed my perception of that landscape. Because while it is true that it is hostile and dramatic and a little bit sort of violent in a way, in the way that the, it sits. When you walk up into it on a, on a milder day, you realize that it's also quite hospitable and welcoming and cozy. And the mountains trap the warmth. And at the very top of the valley, um, you know, I, I sat down and I, I actually ended up falling. I was jet lagged and I fell asleep in the, in the, in the long grass. Um, and I had a very different experience of the landscape and that that's sort of part of uh what i wanted to do in the book was that you know the relationship with the land is not always uh how we first imagine it you know we we see the the dramatic aspect of the land but it's only when we spend time in it that we that we see some of the other shades and nuances that that brings me to another theme i wanted to touch on very quickly and and that it's something that I read in this novel, and, and I've, I've read it in Hannah Kent's fiction as well. And it's it's this tension or conflict that plays out between uh, traditional belief systems and um, relationships with the natural world uh, in in conflict with you know the modernization and, and state ordained Christianity that kind of slowly creeps across the north of Europe. Uh, how did that play out in the Icelandic context and uh, how did you kind of put it on the page in The Sorrow Stone? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a fabulous topic, the, the Christianization of the North, because so much changes uh, when that happens. You know, we have these stories because of Christianization. It's because of literacy and manuscript culture and monk scribes that we know the Viking tales. Um, they were remembered orally before then, but they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't have come down to us had it not been for the, the busy work, people they admire for their heroism, their bravery, their expeditions, their, their, their spirit. And yet they can't 
agree with their beliefs. Uh, they can't agree, as you say, with the way that they understand um, the the human relationship with with fate and honor um, that their ancestors had. You know, so for a, a Viking, for a heathen, for someone who lived before the year one thousand, what matters most is that you will be remembered and you will have fame and honor and that your story will live. It does not matter that you are a forgiving, merciful person. <laughs> that, you know, that's what, that's what Christianity brings. And, and some people, you know, feel that that's what dilutes, you know, the sort of urgency and drama of the, the pre-Christian period, you know. But it must have been much nicer to live in a, in a Christian world than it was before that because um, the, the sort of endless tit-for-tat killing, this honour system, you know, we see, if we see that today, if we see that in a, in a mob gangster movie, I mean, nobody wants, I don't know, maybe people do <laughs> see, see some glamour in it, but you don't, I don't know, I, I'm not sure I would want to be the next person on the list, you know, for the, you know, in the honour killing sort of sequence. Uh, and, and you would be always slightly afraid living in this world. If you had a, an argument with someone, there, there's no police force. It's just one day a mob is going to turn up, you know, and it's your turn to die. And the, the challenge is achieving something interesting before that moment. And Christianity changes all of that because suddenly the memory is different. The memory is not about what you sort of, what heroic deeds you performed. The memory is what God sees you do, you know, and whether your life is a worthy one and, and deemed to be morally good. And that does, affect, that does affect everything. And the sagas and the saga that this story is based on all, all occur in that period of change from, from, the, from the heathen world to the year 1000 in Iceland when Christianity was, was, was um, uh, adopted and then through to the next 100 years where the impact of Christianity is seen in the way people behave. It's a, it's a fascinating time. And this book is, is right there in it. Um, and it's, it's, it's a gorgeous book. Uh, and it's, it's full of poetics. And I, before we run out of time, I really want to uh, touch on a few of them. Obviously, the title itself is, is, is a poetic. I'd like you to talk about that. And, and um, Touch on any other um, beautiful Icelandic poetic phrases you wish were more heavily in use in uh, the Australian English context. Uh, I, I think uh, referring to the the sea as the belt of the earth, I think was one of them, or something similar to that. Uh, but yeah, run me through them, please. <laughs> well, you're testing my memory here, Ben. But um, they're all kennings, you know. These are. Uh, kenning is a, is a uh, as you say, it's a poetic phrase, a metaphor. It's a type of metaphor where you use the, you know, uh, uh, two images in, in order to, you know, conjure up uh, a, a phrase for some, some, something that's important. And there are hundreds of kennings for, um, for man, for woman, um, you know, and the, the, the kennings tend to emphasise, of course, a certain gaze. So... Um, uh, a kenning for woman, for example, is is slender necklace wearer. 
um, a penning for the sea is the whale road. And there's actually um, a, a kenning list that you can go to, uh, I would really recommend. Um, it, can, it started at, um, one of the key institutions that started it was the University of Sydney, actually. And, uh, and Sydney was a, a, was a leading place for the study of the sagas for a long time. Um, there were some scholars there who, who did a lot of work on skaldic poetry. This is the, the poetry of the Viking Age, very ornate, beautiful poetry that uses these kennings uh, in order to create pictures of the world. Um, and um, I, would, I would recommend looking at the Skaldic Project, it's called, and they list all these different kennings for things. And that's where I got the, the title for the book, actually. Uh, I, I looked at their list of kennings for heart um, because I sort of feel like this story is uh, Deesa's heart. The, the, character, the main character is trying to explain her choice that she made in the end. You know, I talked before about how she had to choose between her brother and her, her loved ones, the ones she chose. And that was a, a kind of excruciating choice for her. And it's one that she is remembered for in Iceland. And I felt that um, the story was really her revealing her heart in all of that. And one of the kennings for heart is, um, I have to get this right. It's um, the sorrowful shore of thought, you know. Oh, yeah. And I just I thought, wow, yeah, isn't it fabulous? And I thought, oh, there, there's a there's a title for Deesa's heart, the the sorrow stone. And you're thinking of a scene I know when when she's talking to her brother, who is the great poet, um, and she's asking him about all the kennings that he's learnt. It's not just sorrow, surely. Surely the heart can be. Uh, can occupy other other things than sorrow. What a touching, brilliant note to end on. Kari Gislason, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much. The Sorry Stone is published by University of Queensland Press, and you can get yourself a copy right now at booktopia.com.au. Thanks to Omar J. Saker and Kari Gislason. You can find links to all books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Join us this Friday as we sit down for another special books discussion episode where we'll be chatting with members of the Australian Medical Students Association uh, and discussing the books that they are reading and enjoying. Thanks for listening and never stop reading.